everyone, and welcome to the July 10th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Liberty Mutual Insurance Company won its case against a company that refused to pay over $3.5 million in additional workers' compensation premium after a payroll audit revealed it had more high-risk employees than originally claimed. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Liberty Mutual Insurance Company versus Service Air LLC. Liberty Mutual and Service Air entered into a guaranteed cost insurance policy. The final premium was to be determined based on an audit of Service Air's payroll classifications at the end of the policy period. An estimated premium was generated at the policy's inception based on payroll numbers and classifications provided by Service Air's payroll department. After the policy period ended, the payroll audit revealed that Service Air's actual payroll had a much greater exposure to the more expensive classifications and less exposure to the less expensive clerical classification. Based on the actual payroll numbers and the agreed-upon rates used for the estimated premium, Liberty Mutual billed Service Air for an additional $3.6 million. But Service Air refused to pay the additional premium, so Liberty Mutual filed a lawsuit to collect the money. The U.S. District Court in Houston granted Liberty Mutual a summary judgment and ordered the aircraft ground handling firm to pay the additional premium. On appeal, Service Air makes two primary arguments. First, the policy it claims is the product of a mutual mistake about the premium calculation, and secondly, the policy's premium calculation provisions were, they say, ambiguous and a mutual mistake. Both of these arguments seem to focus on the characterization of the policy as a guaranteed cost policy by Liberty Mutual. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit rejected these arguments in the unpublished case. The elements of mutual mistake under Texas law require a showing of a mistake of fact held mutually by the parties, which materially affects the agreement. The mistake here, if any, was service errors alone. By its plain terms, the policy provides that service error is responsible for paying more than the estimated premium if the final premium exceeds the estimated premium. This was an open-ended obligation with no limit on the amount of additional premium service error might ultimately owe. Turning to the issue of ambiguity, service error challenges the terms guaranteed cost, rules, and rating plans as ambiguous, particularly regarding their effect on the scheduled ratings used to calculate the final premium after the audit. The current guaranteed cost, however, refers to the type of insurance policy to which the parties agreed and is defined by the terms of the policy. The policy itself explains how premiums are initially calculated and then subject to modification as described above. No ambiguity was presented here. Servicer made a deal that in retrospect it did not like. The court concluded that this does not allow it to rewrite the agreement or avoid its obligations. And now our crime report. 
The owners of an acute care hospital located in the Chinatown district of Los Angeles have agreed to pay $42 million to settle allegations that they were involved in improper financial relationships with referring physicians. Pacific Alliance Medical Center Incorporated agreed to pay the settlement to resolve a lawsuit that alleged they had violated the False Claims Act by submitting false claims to the Medicare and Medi-Cal programs. The settlement calls for the company to pay $31.9 million to the United States and $10 million to the state of California. The settlement resolves allegations brought in a whistleblower lawsuit. The kickbacks took the form of arrangements under which the defendants allegedly paid above market rates to rent office space in physicians' offices and marketing arrangements that allegedly provided undue benefit to physicians' practices. The lawsuit alleged that this violated the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law, both of which restrict the financial relationships the hospitals may have with doctors who refer them patients. The whistleblower lawsuit was filed by Paul Chan, who was employed as a manager by one of the defendants under the key Tom provisions of the False Claim Act. Mr. Chan will receive over $9.2 million as his share of the federal recovery. Medicare and Medicaid together account for about $1 trillion in federal spending annually, and estimates suggest that one out of every $10 of that spending is based on fraud. Some estimates go much higher. According to a Harvard professor of public management who studies medical fraud, the government's approach long has been backward, he says. Basically, the audits they're using on a random sample are nothing like fraud audits. In a medical review audit, such as the UR or IMR process, you're taking all the information as if it was true and testing whether the medical judgment seems appropriate. You can use these techniques to see where judgments are unorthodox or payment rules have not been followed, but almost nothing in these methods test whether the information you have is indeed true. Entitlement fraud is what security experts describe as an adaptive threat, meaning that it is a problem without a solution because the problem mutates in response to every solution developed. Fraud tends to cluster in certain areas and in certain treatment categories. The reason is that fraud is not random, not just the result of some general practitioner padding his bills. More often than not, it's the work of organized crime. When there's a criminal case filed against one of these fraud artists, then billing in a particular category falls off steeply, sometimes by as much as 90%. Some years ago, that is what happened with HIV fusion treatments. The implication here is that fraudulent billing may make up the majority of Medicaid and Medicare spending in some categories. This is a major criminal enterprise, one involving, at times, transnational crime syndicates looking for a better return than that provided by drug smuggling and other familiar rackets. Some criminals are switching from cocaine trafficking to prescription drug fraud because the risk-adjusted rewards are higher, the money is still good, the work is safer, and the penalties lighter. 
on a dollar-per-dollar basis, the Department of Health and Human Services fraud recovery units, by most accounts, do relatively effective work, but they do not do very much of it, having recovered less than $2 billion in fraud losses in 2016. And there were only 1,160 convictions in fraud cases in 2016, or barely one fraud conviction a year for every two staffers in the anti-fraud division. It should be understood that data mining is not a substitute for intelligent analysis. It is not a black box that can be switched on and starting spitting out some addresses of fraudsters. It is a tool, but one that can be used effectively only by an intelligent and creative team of human analysts. But even problems that cannot be solved can be managed. The private sector may provide illustrative examples. Peter Thiel, he is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who co-founded PayPal. At the time, PayPal was a natural target for fraud artists and he developed sophisticated anti-fraud protocols. Some of these protocols were incorporated into a subsequent Thiel business called Planter, a powerful data mining platform. Planter is used by everyone from U.S. intelligence agents to police detectives for tasks ranging from mapping where IEDs are likely to be planted to identifying fraud. The point here is that workers' compensation administrators need to adapt quickly to new tools and technologies more quickly than perpetrators adapt to to new methods of perpetrating medical fraud. And in regulatory news, the DWC has posted an order adjusting the durable medical equipment, prosthetics, orthotics, and supplies section of the official medical fee schedule to confirm to the third quarter 2017 changes in the Medicare payment system. This is required by Labor Code Section 5307.1. The order is effective for services rendered after July 1, 2017. The order adopting the adjustments and specific details can be found on the DWC website. The WCIRB has launched the 2018 Experience Modification Estimator for insurers, agents, and brokers. This will help policyholders understand how their payroll and claim experience will be used in the computation of their 2018 Experience Modification. This application will estimate an Experience Modification based on the WCIRB's proposed 2018 Experience Rating Plan values including expected loss rates, D ratios, and primary thresholds that vary by employer size. As with prior estimators, this estimator will rely on payroll classification and claims information supplied by the employer. The 2018 estimator will be updated with the final approved experience rating values when the insurance commissioner issues a decision on the regulatory filing. The estimator is Excel-based, making it easy for users to view and simply copy and paste data. The detailed estimated experience modification results can be printed or saved and are available at no cost. To use the WCIRB experience modification estimator with proposed 2018 values, it can be downloaded and opened in Excel.
California Workers' Compensation Experience Rating System is a merit rating system intended to provide employers a direct financial incentive to reduce work-related accidents. The experience rating system objectively distributes the cost of workers' comp insurance more equitably among employers assigned to particular industry classifications. An experience modification which is expressed as a percentage compares the loss or claims history of one company to all other companies in the same industry that are similar in size. Generally, an experience modification of less than 100% reflects better than average experience, while an experience modification of more than 100% reflects worse than average experience. Accordingly, an experience modification that is greater than 100% usually increases the cost of an employer's workers' compensation insurance premiums, while an EMOD that is less than 100% usually decreases the cost of the insurance premiums. The regulations governing the experience rating system are contained in the California Workers' Compensation Experience Rating Plan 1995. This plan is part of the California Code of Regulations and is approved by the Insurance Commissioner. And in medical news, drug maker Endo International just took its extended release opioid painkiller Opana ER, otherwise known as oxymorphone hydrochloride, off the market. The move comes after almost a month after the Food and Drug Administration asked that the drug be removed when it found that the drug's benefits no longer outweighed its risk for abuse. The FDA commissioner stressed that all steps should be taken to reduce the public health crisis of opioid misuse and abuse. Endo International proclaimed in a statement that they still believe in the safety, efficacy, and favorable benefit risk profile of Opana ER and have taken significant steps to combat misuse and abuse. When Opana ER is taken properly orally, it slowly releases into the body as intended, but if the drug is snorted or injected, it releases its dose all at once. In 2012, Endo reformulated Opana to have abuse deterrent properties. The new formula turned the pill into a gel that supposedly made it hard to snort or inject when crushed. But in 2013, the FDA found Opana was still easy to inject or snort despite the new formulation. The abused deterrent formulation of the drug was likely tied to an HIV outbreak in Indiana in 2015 that resulted in 165 cases of the disease. The CDC interviewed 112 of the people who contracted HIV, finding that 96% of them had injected Opana using shared needles. By far the most common route of abuse, however, is ingestion, either by taking too many pills at once or crushing it to counter the time-release properties. No abuse deterrence properties can stop that. The FDA held an advisory committee hearing in March to discuss whether the drug's benefits for pain still outweigh its risks, and the panel voted that they did not. 
The world's leading drug companies are turning to artificial intelligence to improve the hit-and-miss business of finding new medicines. And GlaxoSmithKline may be one of the first, unveiling a new $43 million deal. Other pharmaceutical giants, including Merck, Johnson & Johnson, and Sanofi are also exploring the potential of AI to help streamline the drug discovery process. The aim is to harness modern supercomputers and machine learning systems to predict how molecules will behave and how likely they are to make a useful drug. This would save time and money on unnecessary tests. Many large pharmacy companies are starting to realize the potential of this approach and how it can help improve efficiencies. And a privately owned company known as Excienta announced the new agreement with GlaxoSmithKline. Excienta's AI system could deliver drug candidates in roughly one quarter of the time and at one quarter of the cost of traditional approaches. The Scotland-based company is one of a growing number of startups on both sides of the Atlantic that are applying AI to drug research. In addition to GlaxoSmithKline, there was also a deal signed with Sanofi Pharmaceuticals in May. Others include U.S. firms Berg Numerate, 2XR, and Atomwise, as well as Britain's Benevolent AI. But this is not the first time drug makers have turned to high-tech solutions to boost research and development productivity. The introduction of high-throughput screening using robots to rapidly test millions of compounds generated mountains of leads in the early 2000s, but it notably failed to solve inefficiencies in the research process. When it comes to AI, Big Pharma is treading cautiously in the knowledge that the technology has yet to demonstrate it can successfully bring a new molecule from computer screen to lab to clinic and finally to market. Earlier this year, GlaxoSmithKline also entered a collaboration with the U.S. Department of Energy and National Cancer Institute to accelerate preclinical drug development through the use of advanced computational technologies. The new deal with Excienta will allow GlaxoSmithKline to search for drug candidates for up to 10 disease-related targets. GSK will provide research funding and make payments of $43 million if preclinical milestones are met. The world's top medical technology companies are turning to robots to help with complex knee surgery, promising quicker procedures and better results in operations that often leave patients dissatisfied. And the demand for artificial replacement replacement joints is growing fast as baby boomers' knees and hips wear out. But for the past 15 years, rival firms have failed to deliver a technological advance to gain them significant market share. Now, U.S.-based Stryker and Britain's Smith & Nephew believe it's about to change as robots give them an edge. Robots should mean less trauma to patients and faster recovery, although they still need to prove themselves in definitive clinical studies, which will not report results for a couple more years. A consultant surgeon at the University College London Hospitals is one of the first in Britain to use the new robots, and he has been impressed. However, he agrees 
that healthcare providers need decisive data to prove they are worth an investment that can be as much as $1 million for each robot. The main reason for using a robotic system is to improve precision and to be able to hit very accurately a target that varies from patient to patient. It is particularly useful in knees because they are more problematic than hips and there are many patients that are not satisfied with their knee replacement. According to industry surveys, satisfaction rates are only around 65% for knee operations compared to 95% for hips. Orthopedic robot companies hope to emulate the success of Intuitive Surgical, an early pioneer in robots in hospitals. It, is now, it ha- now has more than 4,000 of its Da Vinci machines installed around the world for procedures including prostate removal, hernia repair, and hysterectomies. In addition to selling into big Western markets, they also want to expand robot use in India China, and other emerging markets where owning a prestigious high-tech system can be a marketing advantage for private hospitals. Stryker is a leading competitor with its Mako robotic arm, a platform it acquired for $1.65 billion in 2013 and which has pioneered robot-assisted whole knee operations by determining optimal positioning and then helping with the bone cutting but it has competition from smaller rival Smith & Nephew, which last week launched a cheaper product called Navio for total knee replacements in the United States. The British group brought the company behind Navio for $275 million in 2016. That has kicked off a battle in earnest since both companies are now able to do total knee replacements, which represents the vast majority of knee procedures. Mako, which uses only striker's joints and implants, costs about $1 million to install, while Navio, which does not have as many features and is not tied exclusively to Smith & Nephew's products, is less than half that price. Both companies believe their robots will help them capture a bigger share of an orthopedic market that has been split between four big players for more than a decade. Stryker, meanwhile, expects its Mako system to start delivering market share gains from the end of 2017. Zimmer Biomet and Johnson & Johnson, the two other big players in orthopedics, are lagging in the robotics race, but both have plans to enter the arena in different ways. J&J is working on surgical robots with Verily, the life sciences arm of Google parent Alphabet. While Zimmer last year bought a majority stake in France's MedTech, a specialist in neurosurgery. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Lloyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.